Good evening, ladies, and welcome to another installment of Torah with the Takeaway. This week, we're dealing with Parshas Vayetze. There are so many things to think about in Parshas Vayetze, and of course, we cannot get to all of them in one hour. I've chosen a topic we haven't, we haven't taken up in recent years. I've maybe done this eight, nine years ago, and I even so, it added and subtracted. It's not the same share of eight, nine years ago. There's no question. Um, but um, what Bob is in this week's Parsha is talking about the ladder with Yaakov Avinu. There is the whole story of Yaakov meeting his future wives and swindling with Lavan and the birth of the 12 tribes and then the many different ways Yaakov was trying to make Parnassah and the miracles thereby. Rachel stealing the idol of her father, which we talked about last year, so I'm not going to do it for those of you who have been regulars. That's uh, you know recent, and instead I decided, and I've talked a lot about Rachel Imenu in the past. This year I decided to defend the persona of Leah Imenu, and basically I'm titling this year "Pettiness Can Be Greatness," because first of all, Leah sounds like a very petty individual, and we don't study her in more depth. We're told in this week's Parsha, where I can ask our four questions that we ask at the Seder, here they come right now. We, it's, we're told, rakos. the eyes of Leah were either swollen or soft or tender or something like that from crying, and we'll have to discuss that in great detail. Why? You know? Number two, her names, when she names her children, these are names for eternity of the 12 holy tribes of Israel. Ruvain. Hashem saw my suffering. Shimon, Hashem saw my affliction. And then we see, um, and, and, and Levi, now my husband will be with me. This is their name for eternity. Can you imagine? And this is in the Torah publicized. So like anybody named Levi, now my husband will be with me. That's your name for posterity. Like, what does that mean? And then she's not the only one, by the way. Um, Rachel also has some interesting names. Yosef, Asaf Hashem Escher Pasi, God gathered my embarrassment. These are the names for posterity to name a child. It sounds so petty and trivial. How do we understand it? Furthermore, later on in the Parsha, when Yaakov gets an avua from Hashem that it's time to move on, leave Lavan's house, and venture out back to Eretz Yisrael, he discusses it with his wives. He tells them, you know, looks like it's time and, you know, it's, it's, we're not doing very well over here. The whole dialogue that goes on, what Ruchel and Leah say, is also sounding very petty. This is the, we're going to quote from this right now, Paraklamad Aleph, Pasuk Yedalad. We're told, that's chapter 31, verse 14. Batan Ruchel Valeah, and Leah Ruchel answered, Batomarnalo, and they told their, their, their husband, do we still have a portion in our father's inheritance? Sounds petty, trivial, like, oh, we don't have any money, so we have to move on. Hello, He's treating us like strangers. How many children have said that about their parents, and it's a lack of kiparava aim? You know, they've treated us like strangers. We don't want to, we don't like the way our parents have been treating us lately, so therefore, we're going to just dump good old dad. You know, and then it says, uh, he sold us, he ate up all our money, our finances are gone. 
And then Kola Osher, Sheretz Tila, Lokimi Avinu Lonu, really all the money that our father possesses is really belongs to us. And Kola Sher Mar Lokimi and whatever Hashem tells you do. So God is like an afterthought in this conversation. And the main thing they're talking about is financial problems. They don't, their father's been ignoring them. This is their dilemma. What kind of matriarchs are they to speak in such petty language? How do we understand such a thing? So those ladies are our four questions. We're going to come to answer and understand better the persona of our matriarch, Leia Imenu, and hopefully gain some life-changing lessons and grow from it. Okay, let's start off the evening with Rav Aaron Cutler, Zechrena Lavracha, who tells us, Lavan, you know, the father-in-law of Yaakov, when, when Yaakov goes to marry, he, he wants Rachel. He goes up to Lavan, he says, I want your youngest daughter, very specific. He knows this guy's a trickster, a shyster. He says, I want Rachel Bibchaktana. I want your youngest daughter, Rachel. At the wedding, Lavan, like, bribes all the people there. When um, the time of the wedding draws near, they turn off all the candles. And he convinces all the people of the city. He bribes them, actually. He tells them all kinds of good things are going to happen if they don't, if they go along with his trickery that he's about to, you know, do, that he's going to present Leah instead of Rachel. And he knows people would know. So he tells them all to be quiet. Now, they did do this thing. And that's where the Sephardim got that thing, that hinting that it could be Leah, you know, that, uh, but that's as far as they went because he got them all to promise him that they wouldn't tell on him and a whole bunch of things, you know, goodness is going to come to you and all kinds of, you know, stuff that he told them. They dim the lights uh, and, you know, Yaakov says, what is this, getting married in the dark? And he says, well, you know, it's more modest. That's what he answers him. Leah's presented instead of Rachel and um, it looks like the biggest trick in history. But Rav Aaron Cutler tells us, the Colonel of Racha, that if this wouldn't have been Hashem's will, then no matter what Lovin would have tried, he would have gotten, you know, Rachel. But this was obviously God's will that Leah should be a predestined wife. And it was necessary. She was the primary wife. She's buried with him in Maris Machpelah. Says Rav Dessler that Rachel is his wife for this world. She was supposed to bring Yosef. Yosef provided for the Jews in Mitzrayim. And Mashiach ben Yosef will provide for, for us before the Messianic age. But Leah is his wife for the world to come. That's why she's buried with him. And that represents the tribe of Levi, who's going to serve in the base of Megdash. Yehuda, who are the kings, the future king of Mashiach. And Mashiach himself all come from Leah. So Leah really is his Olam Habadika wife whatever that means, but we did explain whatever we understand from it, according to Rav Dessler, and Leah was predestined to be his wife. Now, when it tells us the verse that Leah's eyes are soft, it can't mean a derogatory fact. The Torah does not speak Lashon Hara about somebody, um, unless it's for a purpose, and especially here, there was no really negative purpose, and she's not censured for it. Even, in fact, in the Parsha of Noah, when we're told about impure animals, the word impure is never used. It says, enena tahora. It wasn't pure. It doesn't say, well, it's hard to translate this in English, but there's a word for impurity in Hebrew called tameh, 
And that's not used for, with the animals that entered the ark with Noah. So too, if it says her eyes are soft, it's a, it's a compliment, if anything, because she wasn't censured for it that she sinned. We're told that Leah cried so hard that she lost her eyelashes. She was crying incessantly that she lost her eyelashes. Why did she cry? She cried because Rashi tells us she was told, I mean, the, it went around and she knew the fact that it said there's two daughters of Lavan and there's two sons of Yaakov and they're going to marry each other because these, there was not much family to marry into. And it says the oldest one will marry the oldest and the youngest one will marry the youngest. So Leah understood she was predestined for Asaph. Now, in this week's Parsha, when Asaph, so to speak, went off the deep end after, you know, after selling the birthright, murdering Nimrod and other such acts that are even worse (laughs) that we talked about last week, uh, Leah did not want to anymore be partners with Asaph. Now, originally would have been a fantastic idea. Asaph's mission in life was to be the supporter of Yaakov's Torah. Yaakov was supposed to be the child purely spiritual. Asaph was supposed to be the assistant, so to speak. That was his mission. He failed in his mission. He didn't want to do that. He didn't want to be second fiddle. So what happened was he he lost his chance to get the brachas, and Yaakov took the brachas, and Asaph is just totally going to be indirectly supporting Yaakov whenever we do something wrong, we have Asaph torment us through Gullus. That's Asaph still is supporting us, but albeit indirectly. Now, Leah did, it would have been the perfect one. She was the one, in fact, her children were spotlight children, just like Asaph would have been the physicality of this world. Uh, Leah's children were, in fact, more physically out there. Rachel says Rav Shimshim Pincus was the, the son of the, he was like the Pashadiyid. Ruffles children, the simple Jews. Leah had all the star-studded cast. Leah had, she had Levi. She had the, the servant, the Kohanim, the Levium. She had Shevet Yehuda. She had the tribe of the, you know, the, the, the kingship. She had the Sanhedrin. She had Zavulun, the, the, the philanthropist. All the, you know, star-studded, the Mizrachvant. All the famous people were all from Leah. You know, so she would have been a very befitting wife for Asaph. But now when she felt that Asaph was no longer, you know, worthy, she could not stand the fact that she would be, you know, given a husband like this. So she cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. We see the power of prayer here. She, because of her prayers, she changed her fate, and she then was given to Yaakov just from prayer, prayer alone. But okay, it was a lot of prayer, <laughs> you know, really intense prayer. And but it did it. It did it. It, it achieved its purpose. Also, the fact that she was humiliated. Now, the uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. The humiliation of Leah. But um, the quest, the dark Musser asked the question. He says, you know, later on, a few weeks, partials from now, two weeks from now, is Vayeshev with Dina the famous daughter of Leah. And Dina, um, you know, Yaakov was punished with the whole thing that happened with Dina because he should have given her to Asaph, right? I don't know if you ever remember this. He should have given her to Asaph. He was punished. Leah was not punished that she didn't marry Asaph. Why? 
So the Darkin Musa says, just as an aside, the Lumda Shazach, if you, for all those brilliant ladies out there, then, you know, everybody else, just listen to this for a few minutes. The reason why Leah did not, was not punished like Yaakov was with uh, Dina was because Leah was not on Yaakov's level. Yaakov's level was he could have influenced his brother. He should have given Dina to his brother Asav, and she would have influenced him for the good. And he was taken to task for this, whereas Leah was not on the level of Yaakov, and she was not taken to task for not having married Asav. She couldn't have b- b- um, borne this burden and succeeded necessarily. And we see this many times. Sometimes a great person can fail, and for us, it would be a mitzvah if we would do such a thing. The, we say when we pray for rain on Shemini Atzeres, one of the things we ask that God should answer our prayers and give us rain, and we hope for rain now. Rain means in Eretz Yisrael, their whole sustenance for the whole year. When, one of the things that is quoted in Tefilas Geshem is, Al HaSelahach. We say, Hashem, give us rain. Why? Because he hit the rock. Now, that was a sin of Moshe Rabbeinu that he hit the rock. But if any of us would have hit the rock, it would have been a mitzvah. Because for Moshe Rabbeinu, it was too much effort. He should have, you know, when it does does exactly what Hashem said, you don't have to do extra hishtablos, you don't have to do extra effort. For us, that extra effort, I mean, would would be perfect. We'd do like what Hashem had asked us to begin with. Basically, it would be dealing with the things that Hashem told us to do. So we ask in the merit of Moshe Rabbeinu's sin, that for us would be like a mitzvah. And we see this many times, you know, that, uh, that, that there's a story about the rupture to Rebbe, I believe, that one time one of his Hasidim um, saw him uh, standing for Tashlech, throwing away his sins. And he said, Rebbe, can I have your sins? Because some people's sins would be for us a mitzvah. You know, it has to be put in proper context. All the sins of our forefathers for us would be mitzvahs if we would do any of the things they did. Because it was so holy, their thoughts were so, they were so, you know, thoughtful about every move they made. You know, for us, it would be considered a, a mitzvah to do some of the things they did. So we're going to see in a minute why everything Leah did was really a mitzvah. Now, here's further discussion about Leah. We find out that she was crying. So, okay, now, she was crying because she needed to... Um, you know, she she wanted to get married to Yaakov. So so it was. She got married to Yaakov. There was though a problem at the wedding when he you know gave Leah to Yaakov instead of Rachel. Uh, Yaakov anticipated this, and Yaakov was prepared to be deceived. So he gave Rachel certain signs to tell him on the wedding night that he'd know it's the right one. That's how holy the man was. He didn't say. I'll see your dimple and I'll remember it's you, you know, or I'll see those gorgeous big green eyes, you know. He didn't even know what she looked like. He needed the signs because he he just saw in, in, in prophecy she was destined for him, but he didn't have any proof. So apparently, according to the Medrash, the signs she gave him were Nida Chala and Adlakas Haner. Those, I mean, he gave her. The signs were the three women's mitzvahs of family purity, lighting candles, and taking challah. And that was the three, there was a sign, the code, that she was supposed to give him on the wedding night. Rachel realized she gave up her future. She didn't know he'd ever marry her. She didn't know she'd be anything ever. And she gave it all up to Leah in order not to embarrass her sister. 
So on the way next, she gives him the proper signs. He sees it's Leia. Now, this is the thing. Yaakov, according to a lot of Midrashim, was very disappointed that Leia married him. He was about to divorce her until he saw her children because he felt she was in with her father on this hoax, on this trickery. Here, why didn't she protest? Now, they do say that Lovin maybe would have killed her had she raised her voice at the wedding. Had she said anything, Lovin would have, she felt it was you know, risk, risking her life to um, say anything against her father. Now, maybe she should have, but she didn't because she felt, in addition, maybe this is the sign her tefillas are being answered. And in fact, Yaakov once questioned her about this whole thing, and she said, I learned it from you. Didn't you fool your father to get the brachas? She felt, I did it for the sake of heaven, just like my father did it for the sake of heaven, just like you did it for the sake of heaven. So I'm a fitting partner for you. But Leah really was not a trickster whatsoever, but Yaakov was for a long time suspecting that she is in cahoots like with her father. She may have an aspect of trickery to her. And Yaakov was the man of truth of all our forefathers. He couldn't tolerate this in Leah. We see the verses, but um, we're told, and if you look at chapter 29, verse 30, Yaakov loved Rachel also, but more than Leah. Uh, and he worked seven more years for Rachel. In the next verse, Hashem saw that Leah was hated. These two verses look like they're contradicting each other, by the way. First, he said he loves them both, but he likes Rachel more than Leah. And the next verse, Hashem said that Leah is hated. And then in continuing that verse, it says, She conceived for Rachel Akara, and Rachel was childless. Why is there these juxtaposition of verses? And in the second verse, he saw she's hated, then she conceives, and then Rachel's childless. There's lessons to be learned in the placement of these verses. So here we go. First of all, Rav Shimon Schwab, Zechran al-Bracha, tells us there's a mitzvah in the Torah that you're not allowed in Kedoshim, you're not allowed to hate your brother or sister. You can't hate a Jew. You're not allowed to. So that's why it says in the verse, Hashem saw she was hated. Yaakov did not have hatred that he knew about in his heart. And in fact, in his behavior, he treated his two wives properly. Both his wives he treated properly. He didn't hate, act with hatred towards Leah. But Hashem saw there was something hated. What was hated? So Ramban says, when a person has two wives and one is more beloved, then the second one feels hated in comparison. She feels like a second fiddle. No woman wants to be the second wife. I have a friend of mine who once asked her husband, what's going to happen after Mashiach? Are you still, are you going to want another wife? And he told her, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, because she said she, he said it a little bit differently, but she, he said, once enough for me, thank you. <laughs> That's what he said about having a second wife. Um, so the, um, the, you know, nobody wants to feel like they're the second wife especially with a husband, it's kind of really, it gets pretty strong over there if there's two wives to begin with and if one is more beloved. So apparently there must have been a slight innuendo that people could discern that, that 
it is a little bit more soft with Rachel than with Leia in a very minute way. She's already called hatred, hated. Okay, so here comes our first lesson of the, okay, we learned one lesson already. That was the power of tefillah. Okay, that was our per lesson for life. And now we're going to learn the second lesson. Rav Shimon Schwab says we learn from this. A man every day when he puts in his tefillin, what does he say? He says, it's a beautiful song. Um, I'm getting engaged to Hashem forever. That's what he says. A man needs all these props. A woman doesn't need props. But a man needs to wrap himself in his tefillin and to feel, I am going to surround myself with you, Hashem, forever. That means if anybody makes Hashem second fiddle in their life, it's as if you hate Hashem. Just like Rachel felt second fiddle, I mean, Leah felt second fiddle because Rachel was slightly more beloved. When a man wraps his tefillin, he's supposed to say, look, I've got a wife. Hopefully he loves his wife. I love my children. I love whatever it is around about his life. But Hashem has got to be first and foremost in our life. And nothing can be second place because if it's second place, then... It's just, it's just, it's, it's like it's hated. It's a big lesson, says Hashem and Shwab. We have to really, we really have to love Hashem. And everything we have, we have to say, you know why I love such and such? It's because Hashem gave it to me. And that'll just increase our love of Hashem. And he's got to be our best friend more than anybody else. There's another lesson from this verse. When she was hated, all of a sudden she conceives. It's not nobody ever gets nothing from suffering. And Leah was definitely a prime example. Her suffering made her get pregnant first. And Rachel became, uh, was childless. Why was Rachel childless? The Ali Shur, Revolba tells us that out of mercy, Hashem became pregnant. But it's like this, he says. Anytime we engage in something between man and man, there are side perks. We say this every morning in our davening. You know, whenever we do something between man and man, we get we get satisfaction in this world. Like honoring parents, for example. When you honor your parent, you get a big mitzvah. But what else do you get? You feel good. You know, this is you know, if you work on yourself to have in your brain respect for your parent. You're really making yourself happier. Wow, I got such a parent and I'm their child. You're, be you're, better, you're better in your own life. And you also feel good about yourself. Keep Gamilas, uh, uh, let's say having a guest. Whenever people have guests, we feel um, that the wife makes better meals. The husband is, says better Torah thoughts. The kids behave a little bit better. Um, everybody's on their best behavior. Really, you get perks of this world for having a guest. When a person goes to a funeral, there's perks in this world, too, because when and they go to a funeral, they feel like, you know, I, I'm lucky to be alive. I'm lucky to be alive. Or when they visit the sick, they feel so grateful for what they have. We really, oh, help, we get, we, we for sure get a mitzvah. It's only, it's only payro sehem. It's only a little bit you get in this world. Of course, you're going to get a bigger mitzvah in the world to come for everything we do. But in the activities concerning somebody else, we actually get perks in this world. Now, he explains further, Revolba, that when it comes to davening, particularly, now davening is included in this list. Iyun tefillah, going to shul and davening is, is included because you're getting outside of yourself and hopefully you're davening for other people. Everything's in the plural. Hopefully you're davening for other people. It's again a form of chesed. 
and I know Torah is the considered equivalent to all of them. Torah is also trying to, you know, get connected with Hashem and being more spiritual altogether. So all those things bring have a perk in this world and in the world to come, you get even more. So he says like this, the fact that Rachel inadvertently hurt Leah, even though she didn't intend any bad and she got, she didn't, wasn't uh, blamed for it. She didn't do it on purpose that Yaakov loved her more. Like it doesn't say she should have protested and say, Yaakov, maybe turn to Leah and give her a little bit more attention or something. I don't know what happened. We're not told that because it's not relevant. But the point is the fact that through her Leah suffered, she immediately was childless. And she was childless for a long time because anytime we hurt somebody, even inadvertently in this world, something has to happen. Just like anytime we benefit somebody in this world, something happens immediately. We get a perk. So even though the whole thing, the main show is for the world to come and she didn't, she's not getting, Rachel's not getting any uh, punishment in the world to come. She did nothing wrong. But in this world, just hurting somebody automatically brings upon itself some form of retribution because we can't cause harm to another person. Now, Leah gives birth. So, so far, again, to repeat, so far as we go along, the power of tefillah, the power of pain. Pain is so much power. She got pregnant because she was pain. The, how bad it is to cause another person pain and how we have to make Hashem first and foremost in our life. These are all the lessons of Leah. Now, she has her son. So I'm trying to go into as many episodes with Leah as possible to give you a real bird's eye view, an overview of Leah, because she's been maligned, this petty woman of hers. She has her first son, Ruvain, and she says, Hashem saw my suffering, because now my husband will love me. That's what she says. He saw my affliction. And each successive son, she talks about how the relationship is going to get even better. Rosham Shem for Hirsch tells us that it's amazing that he's saying that she's great because even though she was the second fiddle, this was her test. Even our forefathers, it's to teach us a lesson. You think about it. Which one of anyone you read in Tanakh, which one of our, our matriarchs, patriarchs, Nevi'im had this perfect life? Nobody. Okay, maybe Rabbeinu HaKadosh, but he suffered from eyesight for 13 years. He had the Torah, Kedula, B'makam, I don't know. Nobody had it easy. They're all fugitives or they're punished or they're this or they're that. They, this is what our life is supposed to be like. There is test. This is what this world is about. And anyways, she, so she, Leah's test was to be second fiddle. Can you imagine living your whole life being second fiddle? And also being suspected of being this shyster, being this, you know, uh, this dishonest person. It wasn't just Yaakov. Everyone said it about her. It was going around. That was the rumors, the, the stories about Leah, you know. So what happened was that he didn't trust her. And I said he was going to divorce her. When he saw the Ruvain, apparently must have had a very holy countenance. Yaakov said, okay, such a mother, I can't divorce her, you know, like. He still wasn't totally, uh, you know, he still didn't totally believe in her like he did in Rachel. He still liked Rachel more, but he saw a quality of child. So he saw that, you know, that, 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 he, that Leah was just, all her thing was that all she cares about is Sean Bias. That she just wants a greater Sean Bias with her husband and that it should be in a little bit higher up and please him more. And, re, you know, he should be able to... Um, 
you know, make a better marriage. So that's really amazing from, from Leia Maynard. That's all she cares about. Now, I can't reach to turn off the phone because it'll, I could try, but there's like three phones in this room. So you'll have to excuse me. I'm sorry. Hopefully it should end soon. Okay. Anyways, now, one more thought from Rav David Feinstein, the Colonel of Racha. Drive me crazy. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Now, Rav David Feinstein, the Colonel of Racha, gives us another idea. He says, we learned from this, these names are not for naught. Hashem saw my affliction. Like, that's a name? Ruben's hallmark was his concern for others. And that was, his name was who he was. Her name, the thing she said prophetically did become who he was. That, that she said, she wanted to thank Hashem that he cared about her. So Ruvain cared about others. He's the one that told that the brothers not to kill Yosef and put him in a pit instead. He's the one that tore his clothes when he heard that Yosef was, you know, sold. And he said, what are we going to tell our father? He was the one that cared. He was, the, he, he was always there for his father's pain. Because it also says in, um, in Ruch HaKodesh, Rashi brings down, Ru Ma Ben Bani, Ben Chami. Look at the difference between my son and Esav. Esav was the Bechor. My son is the Bechor. But Esav was, even though he was so good to his father, ultimately he didn't do what his father wanted of him. And, and Reuben was such a loyal son. Look at the difference. So he fulfilled both those things. That he really was a loyal, different type of child than Esav was. And he also was bearing people's pain. So his, his name really does have a lot of importance. Yaakov also, by the way, was very loyal to his father. He worked seven, and he was also very loyal. Reuben, David Feinstein says something very profound, that Yaakov worked seven years for Rachel. Do you know why? Because he could have claimed, Lovin, you tricked me. We made up Rachel. Why did you do this to me? And make a whole big deal about it. Take him to court or something. I don't know. But instead, he was afraid that Leah would be hurt. Like he's trying to say Leah's nothing. So instead, he made it sound like this is something that's coming to me. And he now worked seven years in addition for Rachel. So it's not to hurt Leah's feelings. Unbelievable. The loyalty shown by our forefathers. The huge test, the Zohar says that Leah's test of being second fiddle was huge. Huge. Just like the forefathers. So Reuven took away some of the hatred. And then when she has her second child, Shimon, says, Ki shema Hashem, ki shema Hashem, ki anochi. Hashem heard that I was hated. In other words, I'm second fiddle. My goodness. <laughs> Everything's ringing all over the place tonight. Let's just, this, this I can turn off. Um, seconds. Yeah. Oops. Okay, Hashem heard that I'm, I'm hated, and he also gave me this. Um, I don't remember which commentary wrote this. I, I didn't write it down, but someone said here that Shmua, hearing, is less of an affliction than, see, than not seeing. You know, when you see something, it has more of a vivid impression upon you than hearing. And not only that, like a blind person is, is exempt from mitzvahs, whereas a hearing person is not. 
because blindness, you really feel very uh, isolated and alone. I remember Phyllis was telling us years ago how um, she went to the blind museum in Tel Aviv and how experience, you know, they make you go through like a daily experience, like a blind person. It's quite, quite something. And you really feel removed, you know, being blind. So, so first Hashem saw my affliction. That's much more powerful. And now it's lessened. It's gone down that it's just the level of hearing. Hashem heard my affliction. He heard that I'm feeling. So already each child is bringing her closer to her husband. Third child, Levi, says, Now my husband will accompany me. Like now, my, it sounds so petty. We're going to get deeper also, but each one so far, we've answered on a certain level. We're going to answer them even deeper in a few minutes. But Levi, now my husband will accompany me. Now be malava to accompany somebody out of your house. You're supposed to walk a guest out of your house six to eight feet to see them off. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky's itself says, if you can't do that, if it's bad weather, then at least see them out the door. Like look out the window until they're out of sight. If you can't walk them for the six to eight feet. And then we find that um, that bimalava, bimalava means to accompany this person when they pass away from this world. We're showing them that we want to be with you. We don't want you to be alone. We show you're so important to us. We're accompanying you. Rav Shemshonel for Hirsch says that um, this is also similar to the word love, which means to lend money, to be a debtor, to be in debt, or malava is to, to loan, and love is to be a borrower. Um, yeah, yeah, so the, um, wait, a mouth and a lova, I get mixed up, wait, don't take that for sure, but anyways, the, the root, lova means being, in, be having debt, right? So, to, um, to, what is the, the idea of a debt means I feel indebted to somebody. That's why I'm connecting with that person. I'm indebted to that person, I'm accompanying them at a levaya. I'm indebted to that person, that's why I'm walking them out my door when they're a guest in my house. The whole, whole idea of Levi, the context, Mikdash Levi says, um, what she was davening for when she named him Levi is now my husband will have a greater influence in my life. That she was thinking now if she's more beloved, her children will be more influenced for the good and she'll be influenced. She wanted to be under Yaakov's influence more. Holy thought, noble thought, you know, on all of them. That's what she wanted. And that's, in fact, what Levi became. All three children that she named became what she named them. Levi influenced the Jewish people through his performance in the base of Megdash. We saw the Kohanim. We saw the Levian. They were our people that we, we looked up to and would guide us in the proper path. They were our teachers. Well, another idea, says Revolba, is the idea of being malav is to be united with somebody, together with somebody. The Shevet Levi unites us to be with Hashem. And a Jew should never go alone in his mind. He should always feel Hashem is there with him in his mind. And that's what Levi accomplished. And that's why it also says that an important person should never be alone. You know, like Avram Avinu by the Akeda was accompanied by Eliezer and um, Ishmael. And at the end... Of days, we will sit in the sukkah of Leviathan. We will be a, we will be surrounded by Hashem. We will feel Hashem around us everywhere. We're not alone anymore. And that whole idea is personified by Levi and by what his mother's intentions were, Leah's intentions, when she named him. Now, before we get to Yehuda, 
I want to say something in general that Rosh Hashim Pincus says about Leah, because Yehud is a separate topic. We're going to say a lot about that as well. But really, Rosh Hashim Pincus says in general, these names sound petty. Now, we've improved upon it. We've said, you know, what her intentions were. But he says in general, we have to understand something. When we find them naming names, it sounds like her personal need. Now my husband will love me more. Now my husband will not consider me second best. Now my husband will accompany me. All these things. He says we can't understand it on our terms, on our level. We have to understand that usually when we, what separates us from Hashem is we have our independence. You know, it's about me, my agenda. I want want this, I want that. Hashem wants something different. I have to somehow make his will my will. But meanwhile, I'm getting in the way. Our forefathers were not like that at all. Their whole life was just to personify what Hashem wants from me now. That was how they lived. So all these things that her naming her children have to be seen in this husband with her. Like we said, only that my husband should be happier in the marriage only for the purpose that there should be a, a Hashem with us always and there should be more influence in the house and and you know this there was no other agenda we even find that Eliezer in last week's Parsha says Rav Shimshim Pincus he said Eliezer spoke to his heart he said he was telling his story of the well to um to Basuel and Lavan you know about meeting Rivka and he said, and I said to my heart, and the commentaries there say, when he said to his heart, that meant he was talking to Hashem. His heart was what Hashem wanted. That's Eliezer. So even more so, our forefathers. When they said, this is what my heart tells me, that's what Hashem basically wants. They were on such a level. The Sifzei Chaim tells us that when Yaakov went up to Lavan and said to him, give me my wife so I should come to her. Nobody would talk like that even today. The lowest person on earth would not say that to, to somebody else. He spoke in physical terms, but they said Yaakov's level was like Adam Arishon before the sin, before the sin of the first man. The way Adam talked that he wants his wife, and he wants you know wants them now, and he wants them. He meant he had a spiritual task of wanting to build the Jewish people. And these women were on such a level we can't even imagine the level of just what does God want from me next. So to understand a little glimpse of what this feels like, I, it reminds me of a story about Rav Chaim Kanievsky Shlita. Right after he lost his beloved wife, Rebetzin Kanievsky, right after the Shiva, one of the first, he got together with his children, he called them all in, and he said, his first words was, we need someone to help the service the Jewish women that they should be, have someone to talk to instead of the Rebetzin. And then he decided that his daughter, Rebetzin Kolodetsky, should take her place and serve as the person that women can talk to when they have to unburden themselves or when they need a blessing for something. That's his first thought. But what is Klali's or What do the Jewish people need? He wasn't thinking about himself. You'd think after Shiva, you're going to say, oh, woe is me. And he loved her dearly. I mean, he was broken when he, she passed away. But his first thoughts were, what can I do for Hashem and the Jewish people? Or another story that comes to my mind, Rav Scheinberg he lost a grandson who was in his prime. I think he was like 17 years old. Um, Alpert, I forgot his first name. When he heard he lost his grandson, it said like they told him the news and he was about to give a shear. He put his head down for like two seconds 
And then he said, I have to give sheer. Like, you know, like that kind of, that's a high level of trying to be selfless and not get into yourself. And this is how we have to envision our matriarchs, that they weren't petty. The names were teaching them certain things they had to use, incorporate in their service to Hashem and how they could grow further. Now, Yehuda has a lot of lessons for us. When she gives birth to her fourth child, it says in the Gemara and Brachas, Amar Rav Yechanan B'Shem Rav Shimon Bar Yochai. Rav Shimon Bar Yochai said, Miyom Shabara Kaddish Baruch Es Olamo, but from the day God created the world, Lo Haya Adam Shehodel LaKaddish Baruch There was never anyone that thanked Hashem Ad Shabasa Leah Vahodaso, until Leah came along and thanked him. Shenemar, Hapam Odes Hashem. When she gave birth, birth to her fourth child, she says, now this time, I'm going to thank my creator. What do you mean this time? Nobody ever thanked Hashem before Leah. Avram thanked Hashem. It's written in the Torah. He thanked Hashem when he got the burial place for his wife. Eliezer thanked Hashem when he got um, the wife for his master's uh, son, for Yitzchak. And there's many other shame. Uh, the son of Noah thanked Hashem in another opportunity. What do you mean this time I'm going to thank Hashem? So there's several explanations, and they're both very uh, telling in how we can change our lives. First of all, Rav Shimon Schwab tells us, when Leah gave birth to Yehuda, the story was still not over. Even though perhaps he doesn't suspect her anymore, he still, Rachel was his favored wife. It's still, that's the way it was her whole life. It was her favorite wife. She's saying she was the first person ever, according to Rav Shimon Schwab, that said, even though life is not perfect, even though it's imperfect, I'm still going to be grateful. Most people until her day thanked Hashem when things worked out their way. Leah was the first person that ever was totally grateful, was able to in- incorporate it even when things were not perfect. That's a big lesson for us. Because she felt like this, says Rosh Schwab, if somebody gets something from the king, even if it's a, just a token, even if it's just a, a, an autograph, they should be happy that the king is busying himself with them. The Shari Aura gives us another interpretation. Shari Aura tells us, why does it mean she was the first person to thank Hashem? She was the first person to incorporate something else, which is very important. I would say this is even more important than the first reason. And that is, she was the first person to say, you know what? All the other matriarchs had three children. I have four. I got more than I deserve. The Chavis Elvavis tells us in the, the chapter on Bitachon, that's the duties of the heart written in the 1300s. He writes that in order to have trust in Hashem, you need seven preconditions. And a lot of them are pretty obvious, you know, to realize there's nobody else to trust. And ladies today that we're seeing more and more with world events that there's nobody else to trust. You can't trust any, you can't trust governments. You can't trust anybody. You can only trust Hashem. More and more we're, we're they're being stripped of all the other things that are been a mirage for us. And we have to realize that this is the message screaming at us today that the only thing to trust is God and there's nothing else. But one of the hardest, most people say the hardest condition to have to trust God is that even if we don't deserve things, Hashem will give us. 
That's very hard. A lot of people feel like I don't deserve it. How can I trust God to give it to me when I don't deserve it? This has happened a few times in the, the generation of the desert that they felt they were undeserving with the spies, for example, the different things. I don't want to go into it right now. It's too lengthy, but they felt they were, or maybe by the, even the sin of the golden calf, they felt like they weren't deserving. So how could they trust Hashem was going to help them when it looked like Moshe was not there anymore? When, you know, when troubles befall us, we think, I, I don't know if I deserve to be saved. I'm not such a great person. But part of trusting God is to feel like even when trust things as he's so exacting like this and chances of corrections and we could come back again in another I know there's some kind of instability I don't know why um, I, I see what you're saying Rivka. I, I have the proper things here in this room I don't oh yeah now it's better okay any case so the um, you know so really beyond what we deserve Hashem gives us even when we don't deserve He's not so small, Hashem, that he, he just gives people exactly what they deserve. We shouldn't be here in the first place. He, why should he put up with lowly human beings on this universe? What does he need us for? What does he need? And then we're going to get a world to come for this great reward that we did. We didn't have to be here to begin with. Hashem is giving us more than we deserve. And this is what Leah initiated in the world. Two great ideas. Either that we have to be content with our present, even though it's imperfect, and we have to know it's beyond what we deserve. I'm giving a lot of information tonight. I hope you can swallow it all. Almost done. So don't worry for those that think I'm going to go beyond my time. I should be perfectly one hour. Now, the shara of the, what's it called? We're told by Rav Hanach Hanach Lebowitz, he says, Yehuda means to be grateful. Because that's what Leah was. She's grateful because and because her present wasn't perfect and it's beyond what she deserves. This is the son she she claims gratitude for. We're all called Yehudim. We're all called Jews is from Yehuda, not Yisrael, but Yehudim, which is very interesting. And that's supposed to be, we're supposed to work on that our whole life is to be grateful. First word we say in the morning is Modeh. I thank you, Hashem. First word, we're supposed to praying all day in most of our prayers about gratitude. We're supposed to train ourselves to be grateful because gratitude means that you're thinking outside of yourself. You're not coming, give me more, I'm entitled. I'm a somebody I deserve. But we're saying we're undeserving and we, we're grateful for everything you give us. And it really comes from truth, says Rebel Lebowitz, because he says it's the truth. Uh, Lahodos means either to admit, you're admitting, I'm who am I? And you're also grateful. You're also being thanking. That's all an aspect of truth. Saying that you're not the greatest thing on the on the face of this earth and it's it's precious. How do we how do we come to these things? How can we come to make ourselves more grateful? Well, according to Rav Yaakov Yosef Herman, that's all, he says, Leah Al Kain Kara Eshmo Yehuda. She called his name Yehuda. Because every time she's going to beckon her child, call her child, she's reminding herself, I have to be grateful. Because how long does gratitude last? We have a newborn baby. We feel the fingers and the toes, and we're relishing this yummy baby. How long does the gratitude last? Usually, 
in a week or two, we can't stand the crying anymore. Definitely by the time they're teenagers, we don't feel as grateful as we did as when they were born. That's for sure. Guaranteed by the time they're teenagers, we definitely don't feel as grateful. And most likely, even before they're two years old, definitely when they're two years old also. So that, that beautiful moment when people have a child, they don't, they, it, it, it's very precious. It's very special. So she called him Yehuda. As a con, you have to have self-talk to constantly tell yourself what to be grateful for, how you don't deserve this and you don't deserve that. And, it, and by doing that, she pumped herself up with more gratitude. Al Cain, therefore, in order to instill this gratitude and internalize it, kara is shmo Yehuda. That's what Rav Yaakov Yosef Herman teaches us. Happiness needs maintenance. That's what we learned from Leah calling her son Yehuda. Yaakov Avinu did a similar thing in this week's Parsha. What happened? Yaakov comes into Haran, contrasting to Eliezer. When he comes to get a wife for, for uh, Yitzhak, Eliezer comes with 10 camels and all kinds of jewelry and all kinds of promises. Yaakov comes, he was, Eliphaz, the son of Asaph, robbed him as he enters the scene. He comes with nothing to marry his wife. There's two wives, and he's cheated. So according to the Medrash, what does Yaakov do? He composes Tehillim. He says, Shir Lamalos, the song, the one that wants to be uplifted. Esai Nayalaharin, Yaakov Avinu says, I look towards the mountains. May I in Ezri, where is my help going to come from? Ezri me'im Hashem, my help is going to come from Hashem. Says the Medrash, he says, I'm going to lift my eyes to the to my teachers, my parents, my rebbeim, my teachers that I learned, I learned in Shem Ve'ever, I learned in these yeshivas for years. They're not here. They all, they're not here for me. Where's my help going to come from? My parents aren't here with me. They've abandoned me. My teachers aren't here with me. They've abandoned me. Ezri me'im Hashem. He talks to himself. That's how he internalized his trust in God. We have to do self-talk. It's a good idea to think of maybe once a day to have some kind of little monologue with ourselves. We probably have enough monologues in other ways. So especially when we're trying to talk to our children, it ends up to become a monologue. But, um, the, you know, we should try to talk to ourselves and we should say, where's my help coming from? And it's, look at today. The world is screaming at us. We've trusted all kinds of institutions, people in their business lives, how much people are going through failures, the fear of sickness, all kinds of things that we're going through. As Rimeim Hashem, the words of Yaakov ring to us today. He talked to himself. And final question that we have to answer for tonight is that the dialogue with Rachel and Leah and Paraklamid Aleph, when they sound like they're a bunch of businesswomen, savvy businesswomen, and they disregarded their father. And then, as an aside, Hashem told you to leave, leave. Why did they talk like that? Again, pettiness from our matriarchs. We see our matriarchs are anything but petty. Says Rav Des, there's two interpretations. I know I'm giving you maybe too many interpretations. Give me feedback. Let me know if you think there's too many uh, points that I'm mentioning in this lecture. I'd love to hear feedback, but I'm trying to give you plenty of food for thought. Rav Dessler says that the reason why they talked like this is they were trying to not wear their religion on their sleeve. They tried to look like, they tried to sound like God is the last thing they're thinking about. God was really the first thing they were thinking about. 
They listen. He tells them Hashem says we should travel. Let's go. But they made it look like an afterthought. So they'd look like regular people. They didn't want to show off their religion. Sneas, modesty, not to flaunt their religiosity. The second reason, says Ravelli Lapian, and this is my final reason, he says is what we were talking about. When you want to be happy, you have to rationalize. So they said, okay, Hashem told us to go. Well, financially, it's a good idea to go. We're doing something. We're doing because Hashem told us. But financially, it's good. Emotionally, it's good. Uh, spiritually, it's good. They recount all the ideas of why it's good for them. Like Rabbi Misha Feinstein says, person shouldn't say it's shveretzazanayid. Shouldn't say it's hard to be a Jew, a from Jew. You should always rationalize why when we're doing a mitzvah, it's good for us. It benefits us. We should always talk to ourselves. We're not sacrificing anything. We're gaining when we do some, when we do a spiritual matter. So let's review what we've come to today. We've said a lot of points, but it all shows about, I hope what I've made to, wanted to do is defend our matriarch Leah. That was my main mission of tonight. And we see the power of prayer and what it accomplishes. And she had to cry her eyes out. Not, you know, not that she had to, but she did. Like it's never an end to prayer and prayer does have a response. Willing to suffer, being second fiddle to be with Yaakov Avinu and the payoff that she was the mother of the most important, illustrious children in the family. It's, you know, it's being second best does pay off. Ruvain taught us to care about another person and also to, th you know, how Yaakov cared about Leah's feelings not to, to, to work seven more years. And Ruvain cared about his father so much and his brother. Shim and Shimon was the same idea, like, you know, to think and, and feel about other people's pain. Levi was the one to care about the unity of the Jewish people, that we should always feel we're never alone and that Hashem is always with us and to be have the, impre the influence of Yaakov on the family. Yehuda, to be happy with what we have and grateful, even though we're imperfect and it's more than we deserve and even for small things. And we should self-talk ourselves for gratitude and be humble and quiet about it. I thank you so much for listening. I wish you a wonderful week, another week of the miraculous month of Kislev. We should indeed benefit and see miracles soon in our days. Amen.